0: Well, do keep your Bibles open at this great section of, uh, Luke, of uh, Acts chapter 2. There were three rules that we were given <clears throat> for public speaking or for preaching. When I was at seminary, they were straightforward, easily to, easy to remember. <clears throat> and in fact, if only more preachers followed them, I think congregations would be happier. Three rules were stand up, speak up, and shut up. Well, this is the first here in in Acts chapter 2. We have the first Christian sermon, and uh, Peter does just that. He stands up, we're told, verse 14, he speaks up and he speaks for the truth, and then when the crunch comes, he knows when to finish. Your prayer tonight will be that I know when to finish too. And uh, so, let's plunge in. Uh, This great chapter, of course, is describing the events of the day of Pentecost. We're pausing and trying to go through it a bit slower as we look at the events as they unfold. Uh, They are gathered together, the people of God, the Twelve, along with others. The perfect company of God's people, the Church, are gathered, assembled, verse 28 of chapter 1. And then when the day of Pentecost comes, there is uh, this great outpouring of the Spirit... There is a sound that sounds like a mighty tempest, a mighty wind, a sight of something that looks like flames of fire landing on the heads of people as they gather. And there's this great sign of multiple languages as people, individuals, talk in languages they never learned but proclaim in languages that were understood by some in the crowd, the mighty works of God. It was a great day now Peter, as the spokesman of the group, is now giving his explanation, his apologetic, his argument in defense of what has happened and an explanation of what has happened. And I suppose you could summarize what he has to say in this way. First of all, he describes what's happened as the gift of the Spirit and a sign that the day of the Lord is near. And in the second part, he goes on to say who that Lord is, that that Lord is Jesus, on whom you must call for salvation. And there have been a number of reactions to the events of that day that Peter is speaking on the back of. We're told that some people were saying to each other, amazed and perplexed by everything that was going on, they're saying to one another, what does this mean? So there are people who are genuinely interested, they want to find an answer, they want to find some explanation of what they've seen and, and heard. And there are others who, frankly, just don't believe it. They're mocking, they're they're making fun of it, they're not taking it seriously. In fact, they're putting another explanation on what's happened. These people are drunk, they're saying. They're filled with new wine. So Peter gets up to address the charges in the minds of those who are mocking and to give an explanation to those who really want to know what is going on on this first day. And what he does is this. He dismisses the charge of drunkenness. In fact, he makes fun of them and he says, what do you think? At this time in the morning, where where are we going to get new wine at this time in the morning? And then he goes in for the kill and he speaks the first Christian sermon. Two things struck me as I I look at it just as a sermon. Uh, before looking at what he says, is, first of all, that he's very bold in what he says. This is a hostile audience. This is a number of people, and he knows what he's about to say, especially once he talks about Jesus of Nazareth, as he's going to do in verse uh, 22. He he knows that these people have the, the events of the crucifixion still in their minds. He knows that they still have the sound of the authorities condemning Jesus, still in their head, he knows that there's a lot of hostility to this incipient Christian movement that, that has just sprung on them, and, and the first mention of Jesus of Nazareth is going to be enough to make some people very angry and hostile indeed. In fact, he, he designs it in such a way that he, he, he puts it later on in verse 22, when he gets to the, the nub of his sermon, he juxtaposes the fact that he's addressing people of Israel on the one hand, And he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, despised, out of the way, Nazareth uh, on the other. So he is very bold. He's very bold to address the issues. And it struck me that in order to preach the gospel in any generation, you have to be bold because there are always risks attached. There are risks attached if you go into a secular environment. A lot of times uh, when I was... uh, culling my teeth in preaching, the opportunities that I got were on university campuses among people who were very hostile to Christian things. And uh, I was just given the job, get up there and say something, and say something about Jesus. And speaking to a hostile group is difficult. There's an exhilarating aspect too, because you think you really don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what what's going to be asked. And very often when I gave a talk, people would ask me questions afterwards from the floor and and they would ask questions designed to throw me off. It was a great a great training ground. I'm going to do that here, but I'm waiting a little while before I introduce that. But he's bold in preaching the gospel, and I think today still Preaching the gospel requires boldness, whether you're preaching outside to hostile secularists or inside to many church people. But we need to be bold in preaching the gospel, and in every generation we need to rediscover the gospel and re-articulate the gospel clearly, because as Martin Luther once said, the gospel is under threat in every generation. Or as someone else has said, we're only ever one generation away from losing the gospel altogether. See, what happens is the first generation preaches the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. Third generation forgets the gospel. Next generation, they make a gospel up to suit themselves. That's why there have been regular, regular revivals of true religion to get us back to the gospel. Now, Peter is bold in preaching the gospel, and it takes boldness to resist the pressure of the latest scholarly or ecclesiastical trends. It takes boldness to resist simply re-articulating your own opinions or speculations. Boldness not to dumb down the difficult parts or to leave out the offensive parts. Boldness to speak the word of God in any generation. But he's not only bold, he's biblical, and that's where I want you to focus on this evening. He doesn't, not only does he not adjust his message to the sensibilities of the crowd around, but he takes the crowd to the Hebrew scriptures and he expounds the scriptures to the people. He's explaining this new thing that's going on, and he's telling them that the mission of the church fulfills the word of God first of all. In other words, there there are three things that Peter explains about the apostolic message in this sermon that begins here in verse uh, 14 and goes right through to uh, verse 40. And those three things are simply these. First of all, that the apostolic message is the word of God. The Christian message is the apostolic message, is the word of God. Secondly, the apostolic message is the gospel of God. That is, it's good news, it's an announcement It isn't laying down rules that you have to follow or telling you things you have to do. Rather, the Christian preacher is someone who is a newscaster. He's telling you something that has happened. He's telling you about events that have occurred. He's telling you about something that has been done. All you have to do is believe it. It's good news. It's gospel. And though the good news is focused on the work of God, who is the hidden actor behind the mighty works of Jesus, his death and resurrection and ascension. And the third thing you see about uh, the apostolic message here is that this apostolic message is the power of God. Peter preaches, and over 3,000 people have their minds changed, their hearts changed, and the direction of their lives changed as a result. Those of us committed to the apostolic message... Believe it to me, the word of God, the gospel of God, and the power of God. I just want to look at the first one this evening. It's the word of God. So there's a large number of them, 120 believers. And Peter stands up, uh, off the back of their proclaiming in all these various languages, the mighty works of God. Peter stands up, standing with the eleven, and lifts up his voice and addresses the crowd. And a precedent is set right from the very outset of the Christian movement that's important. It establishes right uh, at the very beginning the role of the apostles in this fledgling new movement. And it reminds us why this is so important. In chapter 1 we saw a great section of chapter 1 was was given over to the uh, identifying and then the electing of Someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning and had been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection and who had been selected by Jesus himself to be one of the twelve. The twelve, if you will, are the core group within the church of Jesus Christ. They are the foundation on which the church is built, the apostle Paul says. These twelve are the basis... Of our understanding of who Jesus is. They are the eyewitnesses and the ear witnesses to all that Jesus Christ was and is today. And the twelve, with Peter as their spokesman, take the stage as witnesses to Jesus' person and work. And he has some things to say. We have some more things to say about Peter's speech. It's extensive, it's uh, cogently argued, it's effectively prophetic. It is a spirit-produced utterance. In other words, when Peter is standing up here and we can read in our language what he says, this is what people were rabbiting on about, the people who were speaking in all these other languages. This is what they were talking about. Peter is now giving articulation to what it was they were saying in all those other languages. This is a work of God, and it's a work of the Spirit of God. And he calls on people to listen carefully. Let this word be known to you. Give ear to my words. This is something you and everybody from now on in the history of the world needs to listen to carefully. This is the work of God. And then he tackles the question that some of them were asking, what does this mean? And he begins with the scriptures. And so he sets the second precedent Not only are the apostles fundamental to the church, but fundamental to the apostolic message is that the first point of departure is the scripture. He's he's, uh, very conscious that he's setting precedent in everything he does. Uh, I remember reading a biography of George Washington, and uh, George Washington was very conscious that whatever he did once he was elected president of the fledgling United States, everything he did, every decision he made, every time he stood for a particular occasion or remained seated for it, he was setting a pattern that people would notice. And from that point on, people would would expect the president to behave in a certain way. So he he refused certain titles and, uh, and certain modes of address in order that he might establish a precedent that was in keeping with the Constitution and the, the feelings and sensibilities of people in this new republic. Well, here's Peter. He's conscious that whatever he does today, on this day, is going to affect the way we think and act as Christian people to this day. So he's been thinking about the Bible. We know that in chapter 1 he's been thinking of Psalms 69 and 109, And that helped him to explain the defection of Judas on the one hand, and the election of a a twelfth member to the apostolic band on the other. And now he's been thinking of the book of Joel, and he takes us to the book of Joel, and this is how he regards the scripture. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what Joel said, God declares, Peter says. In other words... He's making it clear, the consistent principle of all Scripture, that God speaks through a human mouthpiece. He said this earlier in chapter 1, in verse 16. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. And he gives quotations from the book of Psalms there and here in the book of Joel and he stresses the fact that scripture records the unfolding of the predetermined plan and purpose of God and that that plan has been revealed to humanity through human authors. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David and here the words of Joel are treated as the word of God himself. What Joel said God said what David said God said the Spirit of God was working in the author so that what the author said or the author wrote was the Word of God. God's Word written and God's Word proclaimed. And What was this Word that comes from the Scripture that Peter is explaining? Well, first of all, he says, the last days have dawned. The last days have dawned. This is that which was spoken by Job. What you see here today, he says, in this phenomenon that you've observed, and in our standing here now before you as your fellow countrymen telling you this message, this that you see is part of a bigger picture that began in the mind of God in eternity, that kicked in to reality at the creation of the world, that has been operating through the fall of humanity, through the call of Abraham, through the establishment of Israel, through the coming of Jesus, this is a big story that takes humanity from eternity to eternity. And in this story, God has been promising that there will come a time in the future, in the last days, God will do something so decisive, so amazing, so spectacular, so crucial for the story of humanity Now, says Peter, quoting Joel, in these last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, actually, Joel didn't say in the last days. Joel said, after this, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what Peter is doing is he's pulling An explanation from somewhere else in the prophets, and he's putting it in here, and he's saying the after this refers to the last days. He puts it in there because what he's doing is reporting a conversation. The Bible reports God's conversation with humanity, God's speaking to humanity. And if I'm summing up a conversation that my daughters had with me, and I'm summing it up to my wife, I I recall bits and pieces, I put it together, as I usually leave bits out, but I'm giving her the, the main idea of what's being said. I'm, I'm, I, all of them are her words, and I'm just relaying them to my wife, and, I, and I'm conveying the message that was intended, but I, I don't need to be conscious as I'm doing that of actually word for word saying what she said. All of the Bible is the Word of God. It's God's conversation with us. Uh, and Peter, therefore, feels quite free to explicate one part of the Bible by using another part of the Bible and putting it all together because it all came from the one source, God. Now, notice this. What Peter is doing on this day is he's preaching. There's a difference between translation and preaching. Translation has to closely follow word for word the meaning of the original text. Preaching paraphrases synthesizes, clarifies, cross-references in a way that translation doesn't. So Peter says that in the last days, the last days have arrived, in these last days, this is the final part of God's redemptive purpose. And what he says is missional value. Because in the prophets, you see, the last days, when they come, are going to be characterised by a number of things. First of all, the people of Israel will return to the Lord their God, they will return to David their rightful king, and the peoples of the nations will stream to the house of God in Jerusalem to be taught of God and ruled by God. The last days concerned events that would lead up to and end in the great and glorious day of the Lord. The end of all history, as we know it. Let me just, for a moment, run through a couple of Old Testament scriptures. Hosea chapter 3, for example. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord. And David their king, and they shall come to fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Or from Isaiah. Isaiah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come. And they'll say to the people there, Teach us, teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. Now says Peter, what you see here today is what was prophesied by Hosea and Micah and Isaiah and Joel wonders in the heavens above signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke Sun turned to darkness moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes you've seen them he says you've seen people healed you've seen the lame walk the blind see the deaf hear the dead rise You've seen the midday midnight when the whole earth was covered with darkness when Jesus was on the cross. You've heard of the earthquakes that surrounded Jerusalem on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. You've seen evidences of these supernatural things. And these are nothing compared to what is going to come at the end of the end. These events, he says, these people speaking in multiple languages of the world, reversing the story of Babel. These are wonders and signs done in your sight, in your lifetime. They're signaling the great end of all things. Now, you see, when Peter makes this announcement and says, this is that, these are the last days, what would most Jews expect? Well, they would have expected that if these were the last days, and if this was the great and terrible day of the Lord, that immediately God would nuke his enemies and end the world. And what Peter is going to go on to say, and what we don't have time to do this evening, but to go on to the next part of this sermon, is here's the good news. The good news is... That the day of the Lord has arrived, the coming of the Lord has arrived, that period of the end times is here, but guess what? God in his sheer grace, God in his overwhelming patience with humanity is holding back, holding back in his mercy the sheer onslaught of his wrath against sin, holding it back in order that there may be time for men and women and boys and girls to repent. There's mercy. The last days have dawned. And secondly, the promised gift has arrived. He has poured out, poured out what you see and hear. This is what Joel said. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You've seen it today, says Peter. You've seen men and women. Here we are, talking about the wonderful things of God, and you're wondering why it is we're able to speak in the dialects of people from various parts of the empire. Here's the reason. God has poured out His Spirit upon us and enabled us to prophesy, to speak the Word of God. You see, when this was prophesied by Joel, he was picking up on, Joel was one of the last in a series of prophets in the Bible. He was picking up in the language of one of, of the very first prophet in the Bible, at least the first significant prophet in the Bible, who is Moses. Moses was overwhelmed with the work that God had called him to do, and he was encouraged by his father, uh, by, by Jethro, to, uh, to establish an eldership. Jethro had no idea what he was asking. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the great gifts, it is, seriously, I'm only... I'm Joshua, joking with you. Uh, he, so he established an eldership. Seventy men were appointed elders in Israel. And uh, the day came for them to be ordained, and he took them aside to the tent of meeting, and there prayed that the spirit that God had given to him might be upon them, that there might be wisdom, to share with him the burden of leadership, and to lead God's people, Israel. And the spirit fell upon the elders with Moses, the tent of meeting. All the elders prophesied, they prophesied, they spoke the word of God. But there were two elders who were late for the meeting. They were still in the camp. Nothing, some things never change. There were two elders who were back home. They, they couldn't find a parking spot. And so they, they, were, they were a bit late getting to the meeting. And guess what, where they were, where they were in New Jersey, the spirit fell upon them. The spirit fell upon them. They were prophesying as well. They weren't in the camp in Philly. They were in New Jersey, and they're prophesying the same way the people here were. That's the picture that's painted there. And Joshua, he's very defensive of Moses. He comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you, you really need to discipline those, those people who weren't at the meeting when the Spirit fell. And they're prophesying. You need to tell them to stop doing that. And Moses says this, Would, would that all God's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. Well Joel says in the last days, Moses' heart cry will be fulfilled. I will put my spirit on them all. And here they are, says Peter, this is this is what's going on here. This is what you're seeing today, a new Israel, a new congregation. And they're all prophesying. They're all speaking the word of God to you. Now, this is important. Well, I've been stressing, the apostles' role is absolutely unique. But I want you to notice that when the Spirit came, it wasn't just the apostles who were there. It was the whole church that was there. All of 120 of them were there. And on that first Pentecost, they were all able to speak the words of God. And although the apostles remained central in the early church, there were others who were called in to do different things. There were people who were appointed as deacons, and guess what? They went on to speak about Jesus. And that led the church to to distinguish between what they call the special call of God to preach and pastor and the general call of all believers to speak boldly about Jesus to their friends, and to share the gospel. Now, that's been been the understanding of the church, certainly since the Reformation in the great Heidelberg Catechism. For example, chapter 31, asks the question, Why is Jesus called Christ, or the Anointed? The answer is this, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God. And then verse uh, chapter 31, the question, 32, the question, but why are you called a Christian, an anointed one? And the answer of the catechism is this, because I am a member of Christ, the anointed one by faith, and thus am a partaker of his anointing, so that I may confess his name. He's the chief prophet. What I do, I do by way of analogy. I speak about him. I speak of him. I witness to him. I tell my friends about what he's done. I share his name. And in doing so, I share something of that great prophetic ministry of the church. You see, although the apostles are the primary witnesses that are the basis of our faith, there's a sense in which the language of that first calling in chapter 1, where we're told, you will be my witnesses, echoes the language of Isaiah, in which all Israel was told that they were to be witnesses in the court, standing in the, in the witness stand against all the idols of the nations, declaring that Jesus, that, that God is the only God there is. All peoples, your sons and daughters, my male servants and female servants, all of them speaking the word of God. Now that was a unique phenomenon. It was a unique phenomenon in uh, in Israel. When Moses was around, we're told in Numbers 11 that those who prophesied that day, the elders who prophesied that day, they did not do so again. And it seems as if this speaking in multiple languages was not repeated many times by the people who were doing it then or, or elsewhere in Acts. Not many times. It happens when, when it reaches the Samaritans and then it reaches the Gentiles. But this was not something that was normative. But what was normative was that they spoke the word of God. So the promised gift has been given. And then the last thing really in this little section today is that the world's Savior is identified. You see, as he goes down through Joel, he comes to this magnificent conclusion. He says, all of these things that we're describing have happened. They're preparatory to that final day, the day of the Lord, when it comes, the great and magnificent day. And he, quoting Joel, he goes on, And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who was Joel talking about when he said the Lord? He's talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. Who does Peter mean when he says, now, as a result of this that's happened today, let me tell you, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's he speaking about? Well, he goes on to tell us He goes on to give an explanation of Jesus from verse 22 that culminates in this, in verse 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Who is the Lord? Christ is the Lord. See, this was De- Peter's chance to be all politically correct, wasn't it? He could, have, he could have just said, well, you know, you've got your Lord, we've got our Lord. Like George Harrison's song, Harry Krishna, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Lord, Lord. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Too holy to admit it. (laughs) But Peter isn't politically correct. He tells them. Scripture says whoever calls the name of the Lord Jehovah will be saved. Let me tell you, Jehovah Jesus is the one name by which you must be saved. Let's pray. we thank you that the latter days have dawned. We live between the times now, waiting their conclusion, when Jesus shall come back in power and glory. We thank you that uh, the promised gift has been given and that everyone here who is a believer has with resting and residing within them the spirit of glory and of God. We thank you that the world's Savior is identified, that for every nation under heaven there is but one Lord, and whoever calls on his name shall be saved. We pray that tonight someone here would call on his name for the very first time and be saved. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen.